Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. So the subject of today's episode is beloved game show host Bob Barker, uh, a member of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe. Barker quite literally went off the reservation, in this case the Rosebud Sioux Indian Reservation in Washington State, to pursue a career in broadcasting in 1950. After a successful six-year stint as the host of his own radio show, Barker scored his first game show gig as the host of Truth or Consequences in 1956, a job that he held for over 25 years. Uh, However, it was in 1972 that he ultimately took the job for which the majority of our listeners will know him, host of the freshly revived at the time, The Price is Right. It is now the longest running game show in television history, so quite a come up. Uh, He held that post for 35 years before retiring in 2007. Barker was a, a vegetarian and an outspoken advocate for animal rights. In 1982, he started signing off episodes of The Price is Right with the now famous line, this is Bob Barker, reminded you to help control the pet population, have your pets spayed or neutered. He also put his money where his mouth was, donating tens of millions of dollars to pro-animal rights causes, including founding the DJ&T Foundation, named after his mother, which contributed millions more to animal neutering programs and funded rescue and park facilities across the country. Bob Barker sadly passed away after a lengthy struggle with Alzheimer in August of this year at age 99. He left behind a partner of 40 years, Nancy Burnett, but he had no children. Shortly after Barker's death, his publicist, Roger Neal, announced that the bulk of his estate would be donated and split between 40 animal rights and military charities. According to Neal, Bob's love for animals and to rescue animals and to make sure that animals were not harmed on the sets of movies and television shows in Hollywood to make sure that animals could live their life in peace and be well taken care of in animal sanctuaries. That was his mission in life. So David, almost clients won't really be able to engage in philanthropy on the same scale as Bob Barker did. They can nonetheless still leave strong charitable legacies. Uh, What do you do when faced with a philanthropically inclined client who perhaps doesn't know where to begin? Well, I ask them where their interests are. Usually they have a sense of the charities they want to support. They're often the charities they've been supporting. And so there's not a whole lot of open issues there. They they usually have a strong sense of where they want to give their their funds already, as as Bob Barker did. You know, when they come in, I think, you know, even if they have an idea of what their sort of goals are, I I think there is still a, a bit of a gap, right, between, well, I want to give my money to charity and then the actual process of giving that money to charity. So, you know, where do you sort of, what do you do in sort of that terms of guidance and, and where do you sort of begin with them? Well, I'm always careful not to put my own views in and tell them which mm-hmm. charities to support. So like usually they know the charities they want to support already or they're not going to leave it to charity or they set up a family foundation or they already have one. So often they'll leave their funds to the family foundation. It'll be run by their family after they're gone. And that organization will leave the funds, will make donations to various charities over time. But if they don't, I've rarely, if ever had a client say, I want to leave all my money to charity, but I have no idea who. Um, 
they probably don't want to leave it to charity in that case. They probably don't feel strongly about any particular cause. So you, know, you mentioned uh, family foundations. That's, uh, I think, the the WMD of sort of charitable options, I think, for, for a lot of these families. Um, but it's certainly not the only one. Um, what are some of the, the sort of vehicles and the options that, that, that you, the clients, have available to them that, that you work with? Um, so there's outright gifts to the charities they know and, and like. And, and by the way, there's some firms and that I've referred clients to that help people explore their charitable interests. So I want to help education or I want to help the environment. And there's some companies that will help them find, well, what are the charities that are doing the type of work they're seeking? So that's not what work that I do as their lawyer, but I can put them in, in those hands. But for the families that want to leave it to their family or others to dole out over time. As I mentioned, there's the family foundation. They'll have to set that up. They'll need to select the board, who how the board will be selected going forward, if there'll be any limitations on who they can give to or the types of causes. And there's also donor advised funds, which is sort of an off-the-shelf family foundation. So there's many organizations that run a donor advised fund where there's no legal work involved on the client's part. They just give it to or leave it to this fund they can have a name if they want to give it one. And then their family members can be the so-called advisors. And as advisors, they can recommend grants to other charities over time. So a much much simpler uh, approach than setting up a family foundation. So what sort of clients, you know, for, you sort of mentioned three options there, right? You're sort of direct gifting your foundation and then your, D, your, your DAF. And what's the profile of clients that you would you know, try to put into each? Is it just sort of based on wealth level or is it based more on temperament? Uh, I think the, as far as the amounts, if, if they're not very, very large amounts, I would tell the client, you know, what are the charities you want to support and let's help find them and let's put you in the hands of someone who can help you find them. If we're getting to larger amounts, Donor advised funds, there's some very, very large ones. There's some in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So it's not to say that if you're giving more than, say, $10 million, you should not have a donor advised fund. You should have a family foundation. Just depends what the client wants to do. The donor advised fund, if all you're doing is looking to write checks to charities, which is a perfectly charitable thing to do, then a donor advised fund will suit them just fine. If they want to do more activities, or some people like having the name on the door, so to speak, of the Jones Family Foundation, mm -hmm. and they want their kids to have a more vested interest in actually being on a board, not just you're an advisor for this this donor advised fund run by some other charity, uh, then then they lean towards the the foundation. If they want to get their hands dirty, so to speak, and and create a a, a scholarship program or get more involved in research, not just cutting checks to other charities. That's where a foundation is going to come into play. But I've had many clients that set up foundations and years later, they find they weren't really using them for these other purposes and transfer the funds to a donor advised fund and, and shut down their foundation. Yeah, they were just kind of paying the overhead for no reason. Pardon? I said they were just kind of paying all that overhead for no reason. Yes. Yes. I mean, there's annual filings with the annual foundation. There's minimum distributions that have to be paid. There's actually, they're, they're tax exempt, income tax exempt, but there's a one to 2% annual excise tax on the investment income. So they're, they're not free, but neither, neither is a donor advised fund. Donor advised funds have fees, 
but they're usually very, very low. Mm-hmm. So you, know, you mentioned uh, the kids in your last answer, and I think that's, uh, as always, a giant aspect of any estate plan, right? The kids. In this case, sort of, you know, we're talking about giving money away to charity. Um, someone obviously, if we're giving it to charity, we're not giving it to the kids. What are some of the issues that can arise there, and sort of what are some techniques we can maybe do to try to head off uh, any sort of issues with you're not maybe the kids aren't necessarily getting as much uh, as they expected? So it depends on the scale. If it's one thing, if the family has millions of dollars and they left a hundred thousand dollars to charity, uh, you know, I don't think anyone's going to get all ruffled feathers over that. Uh, but if there's a significant percentage of the assets going to charity, it's something that you might want to communicate with their kids, let them know that ahead of time for their own planning, for their own expectations. It also heads off any arguments. Oh, someone else convinced them to do this. No, they told you about it. You had a conversation about it. If you had any reservations about it, you probably raised them at that time. So it serves both of those purposes, setting expectations, heading off potential battles if there were to be one. Uh, but I have many clients that, you know, take Bob Barker. He was 99. If he had kids, they probably would have been 70, 75 by now. Mm-hmm. You know, the point of leaving them money at that stage of their life, he either took care of them during his life or he didn't, but he did whatever he's going to do. His his goals for his kids financially were probably already met if he had had any kids, I should say. And so I do find clients in that stage, hey, I already took care of my kids. The rest can now go to charity. Uh, another thing I've told many clients is, is to consider the incremental benefit to leaving assets to kids. If you leave them, obviously this is in larger estates, uh, but an extra million dollars, the kids have already inherited 10 million apiece. piece or pick your number and we can leave another million dollars to them. And after estate taxes and after dividing it by the three kids, if that's how many there are, it might mean $150,000, $160,000 a piece, or we can leave a million dollars to charity. And when you look at it that way, the incremental benefit of $160,000 per child who just inherited $10 million is not, it, it's de minimis. And so many clients have thought of it that way and then said, yeah, let's send some money over to charity and no one's going to get all upset about that piece. Very interesting. It was always you know, fun to remember in a lot of these estate planning sort of problems that because we're always talking about the kids and the heirs and the next generation that you know a lot of times the next generation you know has their own grandkids and so you know, these kids we're talking about are like you said seventy or fifty or like they're very much adults. That's right. I do tell clients, you know, is everyone truly taken care of? Are there other family members, siblings? other relatives you want to take care of, not trying to dissuade them from charity, but look at the whole picture, especially if your kids are already taken care of, so to speak. You know, you mentioned some of the uh, the tax math that gets involved here. Let's unpack that a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, what are some of the tax implications of of leaving you know, money to charity or not leaving money to charity, as the case may be? So leaving money at death at charity has only a benefit to those who would otherwise pay estate tax. If, mm-hmm. if you're under the exemption for estate tax, which for federal tax purposes is currently 12.92 million. So anything under that, there won't be any tax no matter where it goes. Uh, but if you're subject to the estate tax because your assets are over that amount, then anything you leave to charity is not subject to tax. So unlimited charitable deduction. So there's a tax benefit from that. 
But if you're under that amount, there's no tax benefit. It's simply you want to benefit charity and, and support a charitable cause. If you give the money away during your life, including the day before you die, then not only do you avoid a state tax on those funds, but there's an income tax deduction you may get based on your income and whether you know, deductibility limits. Um, so I do encourage clients when they say, look, I'm going to leave $5 million or a million or a hundred thousand or whatever to these charities when I'm gone. I try to put in their head, you can do this during life if you're able and willing and can part with the funds. And not only will you avoid a state tax, but you also get an income tax deduction. So the government might be paying, you know, a third of this or so uh, based on your, on your tax bracket through the use of a deduction. The day after you die, there is no income tax deduction. You're not here. And the other thing I tell them is it's more fun to give away money while you're here. Mm -hmm. You can see the benefits. You can see the fruits of your labor as opposed to this will happen when I'm gone and they'll, you know, have a ceremony in your honor, but you won't be there to see it. That's, that's really a great point, David. I think that's, you know, applies beyond philanthropy, right? I think it's to sort of most aspects of estate planning with some, you know, very obvious um, exceptions and you know, highly appreciated assets and those sorts of things that you maybe want to leave in the estate. But you know, for the most part, a lot of estate planning it gets better if you if the if the money is is given away or the, the things are given away while the client is still alive, and you know, the you know the more, less stuff in the will a lot of the times, the less stuff in the estate, the better. That's exactly right. And just like I mentioned before, if someone dies at age ninety nine and their kids are seventy five, you know they could have used that money 20, 30, 40 years ago more <laughs> much more so than they could use it when they're seventy five. You know, I know a lot of, you know, just staying on the tax aspect here, a lot of the rules surrounding charitable deductions changed pretty drastically uh, during the Trump administration. A lot of those rules, you know, are set to sunset pretty soon. Um, is there anything, is that, does that have any effects in the charitable space going forward that you anticipate? Or is it sort of the, the those, what's sunsetting is not super impactful on philanthropy? I don't see that affecting much at all. Mm -hmm. My clients, at least, they're either charitable or not. If uh, They're often looking for lifetime income tax deductions, but everyone knows no one ever made money giving money away. You know, yes, you give $100 away, you get a deduction, but it's far less than the 100 you parted with. They're either charitable, they want to give it away, the deduction is icing on the cake, uh, or, or they're not. And if it's a few percent higher, a few percent lower, I don't think that's going to uh, change their mind. I think that's one of the great sort of misconceptions sort of lay people have about when high net worth individuals get the charity, tying into what you said before also, is that it's all this tax play. Um, and it's very it's a very cynical look at it. And it's like the reality is that for the most part, the taxes have very little to do with it until you get to sort of a very high end, like you said, but it's basically $13 million a person with portability. So $26 million per family before a lot of this stuff you know starts to matter in your estate. So the number of people who are, who are making you know, philanthropic gestures for purely tax purposes is, is not exactly a, a big driver. That's right. And I sit on the advisory boards of some charitable organizations. The vast majority of their gifts and bequests are people that are well, well under those estate tax exemptions. They're getting the $1,000 gift, the $10,000 gift, the $100 gift. Um, yes, they get the multi-million dollar gift every once in a while. But the vast majority of people are giving not out of taxes, but because they want to support the cause. So in terms of gift amounts, this is always something that interests me um, because it's, I guess it's so unique for each case. 
But do you have any heuristics or any sort of what are you looking at working with a client in terms of determining they say, I want to give a lot to this charity in terms of like what their total estate is? How do you help them figure out what a lot actually is or what a little actually is? I usually put that back to them. So what do you mean by a lot? What are you thinking? (laughs) A lot means different things to different people. And so, and it's like you said, it depends on what their net worth is. Someone worth a hundred million dollars, a hundred thousand dollars isn't a lot. They would not call that a lot. They would probably say 5 million is a lot. 10 million is a lot. Something that's going to actually make a real dent in their net worth, not necessarily their lifestyle, but their net worth. I always ask them, you know, what are you thinking? First of all, and then let's work with your financial advisor. Let's make sure you're not putting yourself or any other of your goals in jeopardy. Suddenly you don't have enough money for some reason. And what's the timing of this? Is this during your life? Is it a death? Is it over time? Um, but it's mostly what is it that you want to do? And also, what are you trying to accomplish with this money? If there's some, we want to build a wing on the hospital. Well, what's that going to cost? And are you going to pay the whole thing? So it's working with their financial advisor. Uh, and their CPA, what can, what do they want? What do they want to do? What are they able to do without risking their financial, their financial position and their security, I should say, and then figure out what's, what's the timing. Then often when they're giving these large, large gifts, usually not just mailing a check for (laughs) millions of dollars uh, and they open the envelope though that does happen once in a while i just throw it in one of those blue mailboxes on the street exactly um they're usually contacting them letting them know and discussing it what will this be used for if they have anything they want to use it for most charities would love just for general purposes they can use it for operations a lot of donors want to give to build things you know to Mm -hmm. buy things but if you ask charities they need money just to keep the lights on, just to run things. And that's not a bad thing. That's doing their charitable activities. Uh, but still clients have other views. They want Sometimes they want their name on it. Sometimes they don't. So contacting the charities, working these things out, the timing, and making sure that they've got enough to cover themselves. Yeah, and that's a really wonderful point, right? That you kind of forget that the charity is a, a third party that is that can be very involved here. And they're not, they don't necessarily just have to sit there like, you know, waiting with bated breath for you to throw, you know, you know, whatever cash, you know, scraps fall off of your table for them to grab. Like they have, you know, departments and people whose entire jobs is to help clients to you know, sort of figure out what to give and how they can help and then what sort of legacy they want to leave. That's right. And if you don't contact them, I've had clients say, I want to leave money to this charity and they should use it for these purposes. Well, maybe the charity doesn't want to use it for those yes. purposes. And that can be a real issue if you put in your will and you've died and uh, you know, they can decline it. They don't have to take it. They don't need to be restricted by your rules just because you set them if they don't want to follow those rules. So you really need to contact a charity, work things out. They may steer you in another direction. They may say, Oh, we have this new initiative that may be of interest. So it's beneficial all around. That one always cracks me up. The uh, You see it a lot of times with donations of art, where maybe the art collector really has a high opinion of their collection and they want to leave it to a museum, but they don't actually talk to the museum. And then the museum's like, we don't want any of this crap. That's right. Or we'll <laughs> take it. It'll be stored for In the feet. basement. Yeah. In the basement, exactly. We'll use it to keep the stuff we care about dry. Like <laughs> That's correct. By the way, that's the same with leaving the art to their kids. A lot oh, of kids are... Well, it's the same with leaving anything to their kids, right? That's right. I mean, in this case, a lot of times, I mean, 
it's, if it'd be the same with leaving the private foundation to the kids, if uh, maybe the kids are is still charitably inclined, but not necessarily in terms of the same charity that the parents are into. You know, that one that's one that I've seen happen in the past where you know, the parents are sort of successfully passed on their values and you know, raised philanthropic children. They just happen not to be philanthropic about the same causes. And so they, they think that by putting them in, in charge, you know, in their will of the foundation, that, you know, oh, this is the next generation. My, you know, my kid will do a great job, but really they've just like dropped this burden in the kid's lap and it's just not good for the foundation or the kid. That's right. And if it's large enough, you know, I mentioned there's this 5% minimum distribution rule for foundations. They've got to distribute at least 5% of their assets to charity annually with some exceptions. And that can be a big job. If there's a lot mm-hmm. in that foundation, you know, you give away the 5% one year, well, January 1 rolls around, you got to start all over and do it again. And like you said, the kids may or may not be as interested. It doesn't mean they're not good people. They've got their own lives and things going on. Um, so that's a good point. And also I've, I've had many clients say, oh, we can set up a foundation and the kids can work there. It'll keep the whole family close. And I caution them on a couple of those things. One, this is not supposed to be the paycheck for your children in the future. The IRS mm-hmm. scrutinizes those things closely. If, if they're putting in two hours a month and getting paid 50 grand a year, that's not going to fly. It needs to be reasonable compensation for the work they're, they're actually doing. And I also caution people, foundations don't keep families together. Families getting along keeps families together. It's something they would get together to discuss and when you go down one generation to the siblings that grew up in the same home, it probably works pretty well. When you get down to the next generation, it gets a lot harder. These are first cousins who may have lived in different states and cities and have different relationships and never lived in the same home. And they have very different views on charities to support and, and everything else. So it's not so easy to pass that down. And I mean, just by the nature of that family estate planning math, there's going to be a lot more of them likely. That's right. Be just you know, because as you go down a family tree, obviously the roots spread out. Generally, they don't retract. So you're dealing with more distant cousins and more of them. Correct. So, Dave, that's about all the questions I have for you today. I'm going to put you on the spot here, sort of at the end, and just say, you know, if you had sort of one or two main sort of concepts about you know guiding philanthropically inclined clients that you know, you think are sort of like guiding lights in this area. What would those be? It would be if you're going to make a large gift that will significantly reduce what your family members are going to inherit. Think about it. Make sure it's what you want, that they have enough in your view. And And I'd recommend communicating it. This is our family plan. We're going to leave the bulk of our assets to you or not. Um, This is what we plan to do. Here's why get their input. You don't have to take it. You can still make your own decision. <laughs> but I'd communicate that if it's a if it's a big amount that can really affect people, especially if they've had some sort of expectations, whether fairly set or not. Sometimes clients convey, oh yeah, you're going to get all of this. And then suddenly you pull the rug out from under them. It, it's not that fair. So I'd communicate that, have that discussion with them. And then as far as lifetime planning, or both lifetime and testamentary planning for charity. If there's significant amounts, really reach out to the charity to discuss it with them because you may learn a lot more by having a conversation about what areas they really need help in and that'll help guide your charitable giving. 
Yeah, I think those are really wonderful points, David. And especially, you know, a lot of people from the outside look at estate planning as this sort of like bloodless transactional, like, oh, here's the math. Um, whereas a lot of the fights happen, you know, the element of surprise plays a larger a role than we care to admit in, in a lot of estate planning conflicts where, you know, just a little bit of preparing people for what they are or are or not going to get during their life can really head off a lot of things and and keep a lot of our baser emotions in check rather than you know, opening up that, you know, what they expect to be a present on Christmas Day in a way, and then there's just nothing in there. That's right. You wanted the big uh, toy and you got the socks. <laughs> <laughs> so we're all out of time. I'd like to thank you know, David Handler for being a fantastic guest. Thank you for coming on, David. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And uh, for all the listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.